Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast, proudly sponsored by Subway. Nothing's as big as a foot long, except maybe the margin in this year's grand final. Uh, it's a full house here in the studio today. Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels, Rowan Connolly and Christian Jolly from Champion Data. Here to break down the Cats' massive 81-point win over the Swans in this year's grand final. Rowan, you were there at the ground uh, covering it for ESPN.com. Are you, are you a Robbie Williams fan, by the way? Uh, you're, you're more of a metal kind of guy. Uh, hard rock, yeah. yeah. Oh, look, I'm ambivalent about Robbie Williams. In fact, I, I might know less about him than most people. I know that um, Let Me Entertain You one, and yep. the other one sort of sounded vaguely familiar, but he's not an <laughs> artist I, I seek out. But it looked like a pretty decent performance. Yeah, he, well, I was just going to say, he might well have been one of the best players on the ground that day, at least in the top sort of 23 or 24. And Jake, we were talking about this earlier in the week uh, when we recorded the podcast, just sort of saying jokingly that he might be one of the BOGs from the grand final. And I mean, if you look past a few of Geelong stars, he might well have been. He was good. Um, six or seven songs I think he played in the, in the, at More the beginning. More than usual? Yeah, I thought that. I felt like he went for a while, but yeah. I don't know. I, I can't remember the last... Well, they had the John Farnham tribute in there they, too. They, they, they snuck a the Dedicated uh, Angels to Warney as well. I reckon it might have been seven songs he played. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they got the value out of it, the AFL, in yeah. the end. I'd uh, love to know what he gets paid for it. Would this, I, I would not be surprised it was a million. For the for the seven songs? For He'd have to do the, a sound for, check. Yeah, for every, no, PR just, opportunities. It's still pretty good. Like, for <laughs> a day and a half's work. <laughs> Yeah, that's not bad. Uh, Christian Jolly, you were not working the game, but you were keeping a close eye on proceedings. Is that no, right? I was working the game, but in the oh, office, in the office. So not at venue. Yep. Fair enough. Uh, what did you make of that? I mean, you've seen a few grand finals over your time. It must have been disappointing. And do you find that in the champion data offices, kind of like a lot of punters, if the game's over by about half time, everyone just sort of relaxes and starts to just get a bit distracted by other things? Or? Uh, it's a little bit like that, but I was even talking pre-match, probably got to about 1.30, I was talking to another one of the full-time analysts in there, and we are just saying how exhausted we were of the game before it had even started. Just And again, I couldn't think back. Last year we had, obviously, a two-week lead into the grand final yep. so I was probably overkill with that as well but you're just analysing talking the game thinking about the game so much before it's actually started that I said at one thirty, as long as it's close for at least the first half that's you know but I was pretty flat by 15-20 minutes into the first quarter I know you know I know the second quarter they sort of put up a little bit of a fight but I just didn't see it being um, yeah the most exciting grand final and probably knew that probably 15 minutes in mm, well it's probably the fourth grand final in a row where the margins end up being a bit sort of blown out I know that 2020 was a bit closer 2021 was pretty close for the first half Jake we were talking pre-podcast mm. um, but yeah just a, a bit of a trend the last few years we drew another Collingwood West Coast sort of last minute thriller I think uh, before we get into the main body of the podcast though something we've done all year Jake something from the uh, game that you noticed I was about to say something from the weekend but it was just one game so. well it's the weekend I guess I suppose uh, well, I must say, there were a few things I noticed, but the thing that I had to sit back and laugh at the end of the grand final was, you blokes all giving me crap for how much I love the Brownlow and, and saying I'd prefer to watch the Brownlow. Was I right this year? What yeah. was more exciting? I I don't very often say this, if ever, but I will say it now, I was wrong. And, and, and you, were, that up. You, you were right. The thriller was the Brownlow count and the, the Snorefest was the grand final. So good call, Jake. Yeah, but in all seriousness, I, I had to laugh when at the end of the game, obviously it was over at halfway through the second quarter, but when uh, the, the guy on the Geelong bench is holding up the one-minute sign <laughs> at the end of the game, like, 
Keep your structures. <laughs> Don't do anything <laughs> stupid. I had to laugh at that. You, you know why they do that, though. So, I mean, they, they are taking the you-know-what by doing that. Surely. But they, they know that if they do that, someone somewhere writing a piece is going to go, it's a, a testimony to Geelong's professionalism yeah. that even with the game done and dusted, they are right blah, to blah, the blah. end. Right yeah. to the final sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's holding up the sign getting bumped by players hugging one another. Well, I guess and, it's and his Chris job. So the it's like, if you've got to do your job, otherwise they're saying, well, hang on a minute. Well, he sits down in his end of season review and say, you were good all year, but what happened in the last 10 minutes? Where were you? No, <laughs> I thought exactly the same thing. I think Jake Collajasny nailed someone holding the ball late in the game. I thought, oh, yeah, good on you, Collajasny. You just want someone to write, even in the last five minutes, they were... <laughs> was there a bit of stat padding going on just in the in the late stages there? I noticed that a bit of byplay between uh, two of the Norm Smith, uh, who, who, who fought it out for the Norm Smith, Isaac Smith and Patrick Dangerfield, both had opportunities where... They probably could have hit someone up a bit closer to goal. A couple of shots from bad angles or a bit far out, and they both sort of put their head down, wanted to go back and, and, and pin the ears back and, I don't know, just maybe convince the voters that there might have been a, any reason for them to uh, to, to vote I, for them. I, I don't mind like, that. No, yeah, you see like it, it in blowout grand finals. It's, it's almost a tradition of just soak it in. in. the last quarter, soak it in. Just chip the ball, get it to... you know, And you know who the crowd favourites are, so we need to get the ball into Dangerfield's hand, get him to take a mark on the wing. They can cheer for him for 30 seconds. He delivers it to Sal Wittorga. So... Again, it's just one of those funny little grand final traditions where if the team gets far enough in front, you can really start to just appreciate your players in the fourth quarter. You were saying something, Ryan, before? Oh, I, I, You're pointing at your little uh, your notes there. Uh, oh, I've got so many notes, I can barely <laughs> read them. Say, it's like a you're like Jake with the brown, though. It's like a, a doctor's prescription. Um, <laughs> no, look, I, I, you know, I, I think that's just the way it goes. In fact, if you, we get to something you noticed, I don't want to steal my own thunder. No, no, go for it. Um, well, something I noticed, I mean, you guys are all so devastated about it being a dud. But us older guys, I mean, th- this used to be par for the course. If you have a look back through most grand finals of the 80s and 90s, most of them were like this. They sort of ended up, you know, nine, ten goals. The side that won, it was basically all over at half time. And, and I remember sort of having that crushing sense of disappointment. You know, we build up and we build up to it like Christian was talking about. And then it's a dud. And I share your thing, Christian, where you're just analysing and analysing and over-analysing this game. And then you sort of think, well, you know, might all be worth it. And then halfway through the day, you're going, oh, no. You know, yeah. like, and it's... Um, and it really was. It felt like a grand final from the 80s and 90s. I, I guess the... To that end, seriously, the lack of pressure that Sydney was applying, it felt, it was so open, you know, like I'm I'm remembering the moment where, you know, Buse chipped into Stengel, I think, in the second quarter. Just so much space, you know, Blitzer was finding space in the first quarter even. It was like a home and away game. It just didn't have that grand final feel about it, you know, Mm. which was a sign of how dominant they were. We'll get a a bit of a deep dive into the numbers a bit later, Christian, before we move into that something from the uh, grand final that took your fancy yeah you're right we'll go on to the on-field numbers soon but probably an off-field number that caught my eye they are uh, yeah, working on the game we enter the crowd um when it comes up either on the scoreboard oh. or the screen and it, it came up on the screen uh through the channel 7 broadcast 100,024 people which said it was the most since the 2000 uh, sorry since the 1986 grand final so later that night, I sort of just went home and thought, and I'm sure I've seen 100,000 be at a grand final recently. And it was, I was right, 2018, Collingwood West Coast, we had 100,022 people. So I just want to know, who are the two people that didn't go in 2018, or where did these two extra seats come from this year to allow us to get two extra people to another capacity grand final? Yeah, you know, 
I'm with you on that. I thought exactly the same thing because I had a look. At, I was having a look during the week at the, at the capacities, and I reckon the last five or six at the G, it's been a hundred thousand and something. Yeah, someone's I remember, t- someone's taking the proverbial. Yeah, I, I reckon you absolutely. I've just just got up on Wikipedia, and I had to confirm this just because I didn't want to get it wrong. But the official capacity is listed as one hundred thousand and twenty-four. Yeah. So there so, was a perfect number of people. I, and that can't something a, a, a missy. Yeah, someone's having someone's having a bit of fun. And and going to their mate every year, you know, when it bobs up and we can say, oh, we pull the wool over their eyes again, Jono. You know? Yeah. What do you get out of the, get out of that though? <laughs> uh, but like, obviously, there's a certain number of seats, and then there's obviously the standing room yeah. portion yeah. of the the ground as well. To what point do they just sort of think, well, how have they nailed a hundred percent capacity almost exa- yeah, exactly? Exactly. No the way. Road? If you're saying that eighteen hundred forty-two seats were empty, but there happened to be eighteen hundred forty-two people standing. There's just no way. You're the stats man, Christian. What's the chance of that happening? Well, I don't know, but I'm a bit worried because I did have, you know, I had my media pass does get me into the grand final, so I had to work at the office. But if I had to turn around and decide to go in the second quarter, would I have been turned away? Well, I, I, well I, want to ask, I want to ask this one. Like the pie sellers, et cetera, are they in, in the crowd? I was wondering this. Is media counted start, as actual attendance? I know you have to scan in, but yeah. are we counted as attendees well, what, on the ground? What about game? all the people that go yeah, to a grand so. final and then don't actually watch a game? That would reduce the capacity to 50,000. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Well, 2019, the capacity of the grand final, or the, sorry, the attendance of the grand final was 100,014. Mm. Uh, if we want to keep oh, going, oh, that's because GWS they got yeah, 10, 10, 10 fewer, fewer. spectators. Uh, on um, in 2018, 100,022. Uh, we keep going back. It's, it's something's amiss here because yeah. obviously there's standing room. Obviously there's other bits and pieces. The performers, do they count? Yeah. Well, um, if it's attendance, 100,021 by, by definition in of the word attendance, it's whoever's there, right? How can yeah. they be getting within literally 20 people every single year at the MCG and the, the grand final? Yeah. I, 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 call, I call shenanigans. I've always wondered in all sports, um, yeah, back in back in my earlier ESPN days, I did some did some rugby coverage and some of the games down at Amy Amy Park with about 5,000 people there and they'd come up on the big screen, 14,800, and it's like... The seagulls involved? Yeah, who who's coming up? Who is in charge with coming up with this number and, and actually getting away? Who can get away with saying that when it's clearly wrong? So, mm. yeah, interesting job. But, yeah, we, we should look into this because there's something wrong here. Uh, something I noticed really quickly before we get uh, into the main body of the podcast. Uh, I love a good goal celebration. We have one of the great goal celebrators uh, was playing in the grand final in Tom Papley. Unfortunately, didn't really get to see any of his celebrations. Got, I know he kicked a late goal. He, uh, he's, he didn't even have a smile on his face. was barely high-fiving anyone. Fair enough. But uh, Jeremy Cameron's beer can celebration. Uh, I think when you know that the game is won and done, it just must be such a relief as a guy who has toiled for a long long period of time in his career um, to, to sort of, you know, kick a goal late in the piece, know that the grand final's won, just pull back the can, and then pretend to skull it. Just a, it must have been such a great moment for him. Must have been such a great moment for players like Joel Selwood. I know we'll get into sort of his story a little bit later on, and, and the relief that he must feel. Chris Scott was pretty stoic throughout the entire thing, but you just sort of would understand. Surely he's got some sort of big, massive weight lifted off his shoulders after the last sort of you know ten years of scrutiny that uh, about his job. Um, yeah, Tom Hawkins again, sort of the same sort of thing as Joel Selwood. A long time part of this this powerful Geelong group that just couldn't quite get it done there were just these wonderful scenes and photos and visions of all these players sort of just being able to celebrate and let loose and I just thought it was excellent I, I really enjoyed that I, I 
went into the Geelong rooms and um, I didn't really need to, but I just I wanted to soak it up a bit. And there's so many... I really do have a fondness for the Cats. They're such a great club. Um, they've been so well administered and run. I really like the players as people. I, I, I think, you know, you just mentioned a few of them, but Joel, um, Paddy Dangerfield, Tom Hawkins, they're very humble, respectful. I, I think they've been... Uh, an incredibly humble power power club for the period they've been up, and I'm going right back to you know when they started winning the flags in 2007, and and you're right, they've worked so hard for this. Mm. Interesting, Chris Scott at the press conference, he said he made the mistake in 2011 of of like three days later switching, you know, um, consciously switching off and going right, we've got to get ready for next year. And he said he's not going to do that this time because yeah. you know who knows You've if it comes it. around you again. The roses. You because do. You, you look at the response of players like Selwood when he was interviewed by Channel Seven, like right, you know, not long after the final siren, uh, just tears in his eyes. And he's like, "These are bloody hard to win." And like, he's won three or whatever it might have four, four, um, yeah. uh, which is kind of funny when you when you think of it that way. But the last ten years in particular, that club has toiled and he's toiled away, and they've gotten close so many times that. It's true. They're hard to win. They are. They're very hard to win. Like, I think that's there's the stat about how uh, you win a grand final. Or you'll sorry, you lose a grand final by eight goals, and and you you might not get back there, or you or you don't get back. You don't win a final the following year, and that's been the case since 1995. So there are a lot of reasons as to why clubs. There's only one at the end of at the end of every year. That's why I always find it funny when it's when we do these grading teams and saying whether whether a, a particular team had a winning season or a losing season. And you, it's like, well, really only one team wins it. But you can't be that hard on the other 17 teams that don't. And I, I know they wouldn't put too much stock in this, but it, it's the continual chatter every year. I don't know how many years in a row us or the media have written Geelong off or questioned Geelong's philosophy of topping up with older players. And it's probably been six, seven years where they've clearly been at the top, but we haven't really given them the love like Melbourne, Richmond, um, you know, maybe even the Swans, how much we saw, you know, the Swans sort of, thought they were going to go through a rebuild maybe three or four years ago and they got to an elimination final and a final last year and everyone was sort of up and about about them. I feel like Geelong have really sort of battled against the perception of them as well and, you know, they were getting too old or they keep going for the top up and they just can't get to the next stage. So, yeah, it must have been, yeah, just very sort of uh, relieving victory for him. And as Joel Selwood said, he, he didn't just thank the people that were there this year. He thanked the people that were there for the last five or six years. And as a Carlton supporter, it sort of buoyed me to hear that because I've been big on this year wasn't our year. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a slow build-up. It's a... 44 weeks or 66 weeks to get to a grand final for your first time. So to hear Joel Salwood sort of say, you know, this was four years in the making um, sort of made sense to me. That that perception thing uh, with Geelong, it's about those three flags they won now over a decade ago, the last of them, you know, because people say, well, you've had your turn. Not just that, though, but they've been in prelims, you know, but every it's, it's third the year. They've been in no. public grand finals as well. Like, as... as as a as a supporter of a club that has not been successful, I'm jealous. I can yeah. tell you that. Yeah, yeah, but it, it means that there's not much sort of love for them. Yeah, you know, the, the novelty. They're not an underdog. Off. They're not a they're not a, a, a fairy tale story that could come from you know nowhere and win it. They are expected, and they I, were expected to win. I, this, they, this. And I've been the other way because I've really um, admired the way they've gone against the grain. And cr- again, Chris Scott said it. We know we've taken a contrarian view. I like the fact that they've effectively rewritten the rule book. And most importantly of all, I like the fact that they've really struck a blow for old codgers, you know. So it's um, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful achievement. In all seriousness, I think it really it has rewritten the rule book. Um, but you know, sides will now think, well, 
there was a really good piece uh, incidentally with Chris Scott during the week and I'm, apologies to who wrote it I can't remember exactly who it was but part of the thing with him getting that job because they thought uh, to Christian's point 2010 they got smashed by Collingwood in the preliminary final Bomber Thompson had left um, uh, Gary Ablett had left you know looked it had end of an era written all over it Scott said look he made a commitment to them. He said, I will um, play at least four young guys in the side every week. But at the same time, they didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can do both things. And have a look at the difference in them this year. You know, the introduction of, uh, you know, De Koning becoming a factor, Max Holmes becoming important. Um, right close. Yeah, there's there's but, Ryan Mines. They've got players that have been, they've been able to... Lit- Sprinkle these Lift players them. out throughout the, this site. But at the same time, last year, they go and get Cameron and Smith, you know, mm. so you can do both. And mm. um, I, th- I think it makes for more dynamic lists and, and probably more excitement at the trade table and whatever. I think it'll be great for football that this happens. I remember when Smith uh, was linked to the Cats and, and the move was going to happen. Everyone looked and said, you know, he's 31 or whatever he is. You know, what's the, what's the point of this? But if you can get two or three years or two or three seasons out of an experienced well, premiership experience as well kind of player they do they, they add a lot to a side and it's it might be the cherry on top and we know that Geelong that, that was the oldest team ever fielded mm. um, by by well not, not even a grand final winning side but ever mm. um, and it just goes to show that experience so long as you're still with it and as long as you're still fit why not like you know the, the scorched earth rebuild model now maybe a few clubs that were looking at doing that think oh hold on why don't we go after some aging free agents and maybe we can you know pad the list and, and get back up the ladder a little bit quicker by adding some experience like that and so. it was always it was sort of i said that early in the year as well i don't think in world sport there's too much proof of a team being too old, old to achieve something there's clear you can be too young to achieve something very rarely in you know the afl i don't think anyone's ever won being bottom four or bottom five youngest team but the last 10 15 year premiers have been anywhere between 11th oldest to the oldest you know in the in the competition so yeah it was always a funny one it, it, and i'm with rowan i'm glad that they finally put that to bed because it was a bit of a myth of our oh, teams are too old and it's not just an afl thing it's a world sport thing but Old teams can can win if you've got the right players around. And yeah. a- AFL is a, a massive follow the leader code as well in sport. And, and yeah, in contrast too, just to your point about you know as opposed to the scorched earth rebuild thing, when has that actually worked? I can't think of a you know like people talk about Hawthorne when they got Buddy and Roughhead and whatever. That might be the closest thing to it, but I I don't reckon it ever works, does it? Yeah, and even even Melbourne. Mm. It's probably three versions. It, it got there in the end, but you can't point to a definitive part oh, yeah. of After that they rebuild. Got fined for exactly, there was a, there was a lot yeah. of yeah, a lot that a lot they of had to go through. Top draft picks never actually ended up making a big impact at the club anyway. Scully, yeah. Trengove, yeah, it was another version. So I think of it was that. last year. There was a little bit of talk of wow, well, Melbourne finally their rebuilds finally. Re- well, is this this wasn't just one rebuild? This was mm. just yeah, spot on. Uh, we could talk forever on all this sort of stuff, but we do have uh, half of a semblance of a run sheet that we need to get to. <laughs> Jake, you, you mentioned earlier the game was over. I think you know basically halfway through the first quarter, uh, things were looking pretty grim. I think for the Swans when Hawkins kicked his second goal uh, from a ruck contest, and there was just this: well, if they haven't prepared to know that a guy who's been doing this for years is going to be doing this at the ruck contest inside a forward fifty, it's just not going to look good for the Swans. And um, the Cats look kicked a few early goals. Uh, 
took the momentum and you know, quite unquote momentum, bit of a, a dodgy word on this po- podcast at times, and just ran away with it. And mm. you know, you, you kind of hope as a neutral footy fan that there'll be a point where the Swans can kind of you know arrest the the the, the free fall, find their feet, kick a couple of goals, and they're back in the in the in the contest. But it just they didn't just, happen. They just couldn't. Yeah, and it's a it's a tricky game to analyze because. It just felt like it was one-way traffic from the start, and that's what it was. I mean, Sydney had a couple of moments. I think there was that that moment there where Chad Warner ran the ball up the wing and had about three three efforts and got it to Mills, and Mills kicked the goal from outside fifty to set shot. And you thought, can that spark them? Even the first goal they got through Will Hayward to sort of stop the momentum. I think that John Minor kicked three at that point, and and he kicked that goal, snapped the goal, and just gave a big fist pump. And you thought, can this get them going? But they, they never were able to string more than five minutes of play together where they look threatening. And it was just, it was. It was one-way traffic for Geelong. And, and probably halfway through that second quarter, it was like, what's the margin going to be? It, it never felt like a contest, despite yeah, well, it being 36 points at halftime and really not over. Correct. And then they kicked back-to-back goals across the whole game. So again, just couldn't get that run on. But yeah, you sort of nailed it. Tom Hawkins grabbing it out of the ruck there, the forward 50 stoppages. But it was stoppages overall that really sort of, again, talked about my disappointment early in the game, was just the way Geelong was waltzing out of stoppages. Um, so they kicked four goals, two in the first quarter directly from stoppages, so 26 points, which is the most Sydney have conceded in a game since 2008. And that was in, in the in first quarter alone. Sorry, sorry, in an opening quarter since 2008. Oh, yeah. They finished the game conceding 65 points, which is the most in a game since 2015. So again, most they've conceded from clearances. So Geelong were winning the ball at the stoppage and being able to go through and, and score from that. On the other hand, Sydney, again, you look at the clearance numbers, I think it was plus three, plus four. Yeah, well, it wasn't out, like if you way. looked at the raw numbers, you look at, and I think it was 12 to nine at quarter time, Geelong's way, and you think that doesn't sort of show just how effective the Cats have been yeah. out of well, the clearance. It didn't, it so didn't it's, highlight it's the how two, dominant they'd been. Yeah, yeah, it's the two steps out of the clearance. So Geelong winning the clearance, scoring it. Sydney were winning the clearance and they were turning the ball over. So again, we look at, we spoke about turnovers on the podcast before. Not every turnover is a clear, blatant mistake for for one team. You have takeaway turnovers, which can be one team sort of winning a contest after a disposal. So Sydney kicked the ball to a pack and Geelong win the ball. That's a turnover, but it's not a giveaway for Sydney. They haven't really made a mistake to do that. So they gave away, ended up giving away 13 giveaways from their clearances. So that's coming out of the stoppage and just turning it over unpressured to a sort of uncontested Geelong player that's sitting at the back of the stoppage. So we know Stanley likes to push out and be that extra behind the stoppage. That really killed Sydney. So as, as I said, Geelong winning the ball, we're able to score. Sydney were able, winning the ball, and we're just turning it over. And it's so much easier to score from giveaway turnovers than a takeaway turnover, obviously, because you are winning it more uncontested and in space. I don't want to open a can of worms here. I know we've had like whole programs about this, but is that clearance count compared to all the other stats in which Geelong are so dominant? That's, I look at that, and I, I reckon I've noticed that a lot this year, that clearance count really doesn't reflect how a game goes. I reckon you guys, as in champion, need to, you know, if, like say the AFL website when you've got the basic stats, you almost need to think about ditching clearances and replacing it with uh, turnovers or, or something. Yeah, so again, the clearances, yeah, it's a good stat just to sort of see who's getting the ball moving the, the first way. But all the clubs, like what I just spoke about there with the scores and the turnovers from clearances, that's where the clubs are looking at. It's like, okay, we can win the clearance, but what, it, what happens at the, at the end of the clearance chain and what happens next? So clubs will be very big on an intercept from a clearance chain is worth more at some clubs than an intercept from an intercept chain, if that makes sense. So if you've you've had the ball, you've kicked it to Sydney, that's a turnover. Sydney kick it back to you. 
you might score from that 20% of the time. But if, if they, Sydney coming out of the clearance and turn it over, you might score from that 30% of the time because that's the way you set up. So every club has a different way of setting up from clearance. So what is that stat called? But you know? It's basically your, retu- you know, your intercept return from... St- again, so clubs, clubs do my head in because they look at things of, all right, if we win a clearance, it gets turned over and it gets turned over again, how often do we score? And you can keep going like that forever. You can go from clearance to turnover to turnover it's to like turnover. It's like those Russian yeah. dolls. And it, exactly. <laughs> it, it's like how many, but clubs are looking at that. It's not just about one chain now. It's about, okay, we're going to win a chain, but usually our chain is going to end with the other team getting possession of the ball. What happens to their chain and what do we do in return? So it's a lot of that, you know, sort of serve Buying and return. Time almost. I, yeah, like, and it, it, it is. It's about it's about gaining territory. So if you're getting 100 metres from your clearance, turning it over, only allowing to come back 30 metres your way and then mm. stop getting a stoppage again, that's your, pl- your plus 70 from those two chains and you, you reset and go again. So there is a lot of sort of, yeah, what's happening in the next step that co- coaches are always looking at. Mm. There's something to be said, maybe also, um, not now, now that we're just throwing ideas at you for next season, like effective clearances. You talk about, you know, there's a way of getting out of the stoppage and booting the ball yeah, forward. Yeah, which, but... which is what we do. So again, the, the 13 clearing giveaways was based on the, you know, the effective clearances. So again, looking at the number. From a single chain. Yeah, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It might have been 22 effective clearances, six that were takeaways, but that was the 13 giveaway from clearances that really stood Who out to me. With effective clearances though, you're relying on what happens down the ground more. If you're if you're someone like Paddy Dangerfield who can win the ball out of a stoppage and then use your speed to burst away and kick the ball 55 metres, there's a reason why these mids aren't don't have the highest disposal efficiency in the league. It's the defenders that can chip the ball 20 metres in the back line. So is it unfair to sort of penalise someone based on what happens 50 metres up yeah, the and, ground? And again, like that's why you look at... And, Clubs are all about zones as well. So clearance in the forward 50, it's, you know, basically you have to score from a clearance in the forward 50 for that to be effective. But from a, a clearance in your full back line, you can basically get it 60 metres up and out of bounds and that will count as an effective clearance. So again, it is easier to have an effectiveness coming out of the back line just because you've got more field to work with. Just a, a, a real quick question without notice. For the average way person, right, who doesn't have access to champion stats and is looking at the AFL website stats... What are the three most important stats indicative of when a side's going to win a game? Yeah, and again, and and that's based on team signature. So again, you know, a lot of it... Just three, name three. So contested possessions are up there, but Richmond, Hawthorne have won premierships bucking the trend. But still, the rest of the competition was, you know, at an 80... 83% 83% chance of if you win, especially clearances away from, uh, sorry, contested possessions outside of clearances, so what we yep. call general play contested inside possessions. Inside 50, sure. Yeah, that's usually up at about, inside 50 is another good one, 84, 85%. But again, there, there will be teams, and like Sydney, I think Sydney were a plus 0.2 across the year, so they, don't, they weren't uh, highly uh, reliant on winning the inside 50 count. But we've said it on the pod, it, it's it's as simple as scoring shots, and accuracy. If you take points out, obviously you got to have more points. But it is. It's just about getting shots on the board and having accuracy and the inside fifty. But every club knows that. So how do you work about? How do you get more inside fifty? So some teams work it. Okay, if we can win the contested possessions, we can win the inside fifties. If we win the inside fifties, we can win the game. So there's not yeah, and that's that's the beauty of football, and that's why I love analysing it. There's not one way to win a game. It's it's you got to work with what you're given, the cattle you got on the field, and. You know, we get laughed at at Champion Data. Oh, you guys love contested possessions, but Hawthorne won three premierships, you know, being in the negatives. That, that's great. That shows us there is another way to play footy, and it, it's exciting to go in and find out how Hawthorne were able to do that. 
Uh, you mentioned inside 50s. Uh, the Swans inside 50 count ended up at just 32, uh, which uh, to my ear at the time when I when I well to my eyes at the time when I saw that stat on on my computer screen, I thought that does seem low. But you've gone digging and it is very very low. Yeah, so lowest ever in a game is about 18, 19. So that's including all home and away games. So it's it's that's it's crazy. down there. But we've seen some lower ones, some really really wet games in one side. A lot uh, of them were at Skilled Stadium, where again Geelong in 08, 09 just didn't let the other team get the ball. But the 32 for in a grand final, it's the lowest uh, ever in a grand final. I think really? uh, St Kilda had 34 in 2010 in the replay grand final, so um, the next lowest. Mm-hmm. Again, this that only goes back to 99, so a lot more. So uh, even in the even in the grand finals with the shortened shortened quarters. Sorry, I took. Sorry, I did take out 2020. Oh, so okay. I, yeah, I, I assume 2020 might have been lower, but I, I actually did uh, yeah, no, take maybe. that. Yeah, I take that. Took that grand <laughs> final out of everything I've sort of done for today because it was sort of. Uh, when we're talking about Sydney lows, it's sort of, yeah, 2020 was saving him a couple of times. So I've stricken that out. But yeah, there was uh, the, the 32 count was low as well. I think that was their lowest in about five or six years. But they're negative 33. That's their equal third worst differential they've had. So they have 33. Since two, 99. Yeah, and that's across all games. So there's just the the one-way sort of traffic that Geelong had. You guys, sorry to dob you in here, but you, you guys should go, given that the inside 50 arc only became a thing from 86 onwards... You guys should go back for those previous 13 years and do it retrospectively. Well, that's Are why. you volunteering, Rob? No. That's, but why, that's why we, we sort of say, you know, it, it's the most ever on record. And people say, well, so that is, is that the most ever? It's like, no, it's the most ever on record because no one was recording it before us. So we well, can't tell you. Well, there's that. And that, then yeah. the, the arc only became a thing in 86. And really funny, it, it sort of crept in halfway through the year. I, I really remember this vividly. And people didn't really have their head around it. And I remember, people refused to believe this, but I'm sure there were a couple of weeks, and I can't remember which ground, where they painted the yeah, 50 straight. directly across the ground. Yeah, I can't ground. find vision of it. I've heard that as well, where they didn't <laughs> which quite Which goes against get, it being yeah. 50 yeah. metres from there. Yeah. But like, they, they 50 metres from the middle of the ground. They couldn't, e- they couldn't even get the, you know, the what was it, the the wheel thing and yep. sort of do it properly. It was <laughs> like it was pretty rudimentary back in that initial period. Um, yeah, so pretty grim reading for Swans fans, unfortunately. I mean, Rowan, you mentioned before just the the ability for Geelong to find space. And you, and you talk about pressure in a grand final, and that's, it's such a cliche that, oh, the pressure goes up in finals, pressure in grand finals, the tackle count, all this sort of stuff is so high, through the roof, all this sort of stuff. But really, Geelong were able to hit their, hit their targets without a lot of um, pressure on the, on the ball carrier, a lot yeah. of pressure on the receiver. Uh, and no wonder they went inside 50 and had, you know, plus 33 inside 50s and were able to nail their chances. A- absolutely. And you, you allow a team like Geelong that sort of latitude and, and their efficiency is going to make the difference. And in contrast, they're applying a level of pressure which forces the opposition into error. I always feel like grand finals, are, uh, you know, there's moments, definitive moments. And you think of all those big moments and we talked about a couple of them before it's Sydney being forced into error where Geelong in contrast is executing perfectly and I guess uh, uh, probably yeah almost the definitive three or four minutes of the game for me so it's half time Sydney's still at least in scoreboard terms some sort of chance but they've got to strike early what happens we come out and 90 seconds into the second half Tom McCartan is nailed by Mitch Duncan trying to break out of defence. Duncan kicks a goal. That's a dagger through the heart, not only on the scoreboard, but in terms of morale, mm. you know, just the way he was nailed. And then, just to hammer the final nail in the coffin, the same poor guy, Tom McCartan, does a kick across goal, and Another that's intercepted over. by Brad Close. Yep. 
So that goes to what you're talking about. Geelong was able to execute with very little pressure. Sydney had the pressure on them and it forced them into those soul-destroying errors. Did you find that looking at the stats that the, the Geelong, oh, sorry, Sydney's pressure factor on Geelong was just a, a little bit lower than what yeah, we expected so in the grand final? Across the finals, uh, the previous two finals, Sydney were 203 and 200 for their pressure. Uh, across the home and away season, they were number one with about 189 or 190, I think they're up to. They were 179 across Saturday, and I think it was uh, 174 in the first quarter. So started low and stayed low. It wasn't their lowest. Um, it wasn't their lowest of the season. I think it was you know ninth or tenth lowest. But again, looked at a couple of games where they had lower. There was a few blowouts where they were just dominant in a couple of games early in the season where they didn't need to put pressure on. But that was a, again from the word go. They just their pressure wasn't there. Geelong again. We're at 184. We talk about. Pressure in finals usually goes up to 186, 187 on average. So even Geelong wasn't, again, it wasn't high pressure on the ball carry, but it was. It was that brilliant setup behind the ball and that the extra player behind the ball really sort of hurt Sydney. Definitely worked though, because I think just the eye test showed me that the Swans were unable to, in close quarters, just get clean possession of the footy and, and clean disposals out of the of the pack or out of the, the, the contested situation. Whereas the Cats were able to flick a couple of hand passes. There weren't any fumbles. Uh, there was a short kick to someone in space and, and they were just able to build those scoring change, chains with ease. And it, it, like you said, Jake, earlier in the podcast, it's just the, the, the match was over by quarter time. Uh, and and the, the second half, you thought, well, uh, sorry, in the second quarter, you thought, well, if the Swans can nail one or two back, maybe there's a chance there. Mm. Uh, at half time, uh, still r- relatively in touch. But then, you know, Rowan, as you said before, just a moment of really 90 seconds just cost them, and the game was officially dead and buried by you that know, stage. You know, to the point about the the inside 50s I was a bit surprised that Buddy got the Bronx cheers at the end of the game which is a bit unfair mm. given that it was one of the worst inside 50 games how, how much impact is he supposed to have if the ball's not there well he, he tried to push up the ground at a few different points uh, took a couple of marks at half back tried to sort of get some sort of you know some sort of chain mm. started uh, but just was unable to sort of aff- yeah. affect the ball and and look obviously the, the Sam Reid Decision to play didn't didn't long work. admitted uh, yeah it, it, it didn't work. But but whether Reed was fit or or Logan McDonald was playing or, or McLean whoever was there yeah Geelong was always winning this yeah, game I'm, and I'm, I think that became pretty clear after the first fifteen minutes I must admit it had yeah no bearing on the result as well but I did find that a bit of a strange move on the Thursday night and again we were, we spoke about Logan McDonald probably didn't have much impact in the first couple of finals for Sydney but. To know that Sam Reed was under an injury cloud, but to choose to drop Logan McDonald, I felt like in the end Hayden McLean, McLean was being brought in to replace two players at once. So it, a guy that's not part months. of your best twenty-two, yeah, a guy that sort of you know does his role can come in, and but you've clearly asked him to come in and replace two players. I thought if Sam Reed's under an injury cloud, I mean, you know, I sort of said it tongue in cheek. Sam Reed's the type of player that he he hasn't made it through a lot of games while he's gone in while fit. So how's yeah. he? How are you expecting him to get through four quarters when he's under an injury cloud? And then to drop Logan McDonald, I thought that was really a strange decision. And another little strange decision that caught my eye was Paddy McCartan starting on the bench. It was only the second time this season, but they just did not have a, a matchup for Paddy McCartan. They use mm-hmm. him on close and Stengel um, and players like that throughout the year. But yeah, he started the first 10 minutes on the bench and never really, just never really got involved in the game what at was all. McLean? I mean, was McLean in there as a key forward or a backup ruckman he, or what? He's you know? a backup ruckman and a key forward. He's, again, he's... a he got a great engine. He he can cover as much ground as any other Sydney player. So you can get him to really push up. And again, it it, it didn't matter in the end because Sydney, we spoke about 32 inside 50s and weren't getting it forward. But he's the type of player that, yeah, he can clunk a mark one or two because he's so tall. But he can push up up to the wing sort but of was he? and allow and push space. But again, Sydney just weren't attacking. So you need 
the ball needed to live in Sydney's yeah. half for the, their forwards to sort of have any structure. But he he is he's he's not yeah he's not a clear number one ruckman and he's not a hit up forward either. He's it, just it a wasn't big just player. Buddy. It wasn't just McLean. No, no. Like, it, you look at stars on that side. Isaac Heaney didn't didn't get a disposal Heaney, no. for a quarter and a half. Callum Mills. You know the two All Australians in Heaney and Mills. If you haven't touched the ball for ten minutes and you're Isaac Heaney, one of the Swans' best players, I think you're either taking it upon yourself or someone's coming out to you and saying, "Mate, just get yeah, around get the ball involved. for a bit." Especially when you're, you're take trailing. a kick in. It's one thing if you're, 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 you're everything's working and you're in front and you haven't touched the ball. Callum Mills, you know the guy, a guy that everyone's raved about all season long, and I'm not here to knock him, but 13 touches as the as one of the co-captains, and what he's known for is his toughness at the contest and his tackling. Only three tackles from mm. from Mills. Mm. Parker Probably, had 14, more than Mills had disposals. Yeah, so it was it was disappointing. But with McDonald, would you? Here's one. Would you rather play in the grand final knowing you're going to lose by 80 points, or or not? <laughs> You'd rather play in the grand final. Uh, gee, that's a it's a bit of a Sophie's choice in a, in a grand final. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd want to play. Yeah. I'd, I'd want to play and try to make that 80 points into no, 70. No, knowing, knowing you're not winning. Like, <laughs> if you knew it was going to be a yeah. shocker. That's like saying, you know, would I, that, that's like saying, would I rather be killed by a firing squad or guillotine, you know? <laughs> Gee, like, I don't know. A little late off season the... ideas from you in the podcast. <laughs> but, but I think, yeah, we've said it. Geez, you're, you're so pessimistic, Jay. No, no, but McDonald. Yes, he didn't provide an awful lot in throughout the season, but there's, he's a player that Sydney want to and should be persisting with. Yep. Strange to 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 take him out uh, and and bring in McLean, who kicked a goal but didn't really offer that much. And as you say, with with the injury cloud of Reed, you put McLean and Franklin under enormous under enormous pressure, and they the ball wasn't there anyway. But that's why I'm saying Buddy getting the Bronx cheer. I think was a little bit stiff. And going back to Callum Mills, so they Geelong clearly identify him that's who they targeted so they you know Tom Atkins is their number one run with player so Tom Atkins went straight to Callum Mills and then I think Cam Guthrie took him and Zach Guthrie and Atkins so in the first quarter he sort of had four really close sort of guys watching him but then he just stopped attending centre bounces so again it, it, whether it's a Mills call or a long mile call he only attended seven centre bounces for the game which is his fewest and you talked about you know his, his couple of tackles he only had three contested possessions as well so they just he, he almost well, I think figured ha- early that yeah they're going to put a bit of work into me and he just went missing he I didn't think even what get happened is when Geelong started to get that run on they're like we need to we need to drop him back into defence which is fine but then you're taking him out of the middle and then all of a sudden I didn't realise he only had seven centre bounce attendances for the game which is crazy but yeah that's what happened he, he went back but then all of a sudden you're making it easier for Geelong to walk it out in the middle and it, he couldn't get involved in defence either can I just throw up a, a big picture one about the Swans because it's just occurred to me now I mean they have lost now the last three grand finals they've played in and yep. sometimes you know like Collingwood had the collie wobbles and Hawthorne had a period in the 80s when they lost three of four grand finals Rebounded and won back to back. Is this a potential psychological no. millstone for the Swans, or are they far enough apart? No. These three v- to... vaguely different squads. I mean, very different. You... Teams. Yeah, no, yeah. no. I, I tend to yeah. agree. I'm just yeah. throwing it up. It's there. always find it funny where it's like, oh, you know, such and such team hasn't won on this ground in you know since 1983. Well, they only played twice there. So it's no, I'm not... big on these historical things, Jake. Yeah, don't the, don't talk about all the lines and the MCG. The lines and the like, MCG. You know, look how Simon that, Black was running around when yeah. Uh, look how that turned sports. out. So 
Yeah. I, I I see what you're saying, and yeah, three in a row. Maybe maybe it's something that plays on on John Longmire's mind if they get to another grand final, knowing and even the play. You know, if they were to let's say Sydney make another grand final next year, it would be a storyline going into it, and it would be yeah. can they overcome that they have lost three? But I do think the last one they lost was 2016, and even going back to then. So there's only two players in that team in the team that went out on Was Saturday. There only two, was it? That Lloyd and Sorry, that played in the 2012 Premiership. Oh, it was Parker Reed and, and Parker yeah. who was the sub. Yeah. But even, even when you look at the 2016 loss to the Bulldogs, there's only about 5. Yeah. You can then add Buddy and you can add Lloyd and you can add Rampy and that's and and Heaney and I think the other difference too is that 14 and 16 they were the favorite yeah. whereas this time they yeah. weren't. I mean, I, I you know, I I agree. I just want to make it very yeah. clear I'm not saying this is an issue. I think the for a side that's been absolutely belted and even addressing Christian's thing about sides that get belted, can they come back? I think we're still looking at Sydney very positively for the future. Yes. Uh, on that thought, we will have to keep an eye on what they do next year because of that eight-goal uh, curse in grand finals. And Jake mentioned it off the top, but can you just explain and, and maybe delve a bit deeper into what that eight-goal curse is? Yeah, so looking at... Um Sydney become the 10th team sort of since 95 to lose a grand final by at least eight goals. So looking at the previous nine in that time, uh, four of those teams have made finals the next year for zero finals wins. So again, Sydney 2014 was one of those. They're the only, Sydney 2014 was the only team to sort of lose a grand final by eight goals and make the top four the next year. They went out in straight sets. The other three that made finals all went out in the first week of finals, which leaves five of those uh, teams that have lost by at least eight goals in grand finals, not even making the finals the next year. Mm, so it's up against it again. The, the last team to do it was uh, '94. West Coast beat Geelong um, by about seventy odd points, and Geelong did win finals the next year. Got to the grand final in '95, but again oh. lost it by over eight goals, and that's when the curse really starts going. So. Yeah, just an interesting one. We were big on it, sort of keeping an eye on the Bulldogs all year after their um, smashing mm. to the hands of Melbourne last year, and they ended up sneaking into finals but didn't win one. So, yeah, on to you, Sydney, uh, uh, 2023. Yes, it's something that, you, that you'll be concerned by, but I'm pretty bullish on the Swans. I really am. I mean, when you look at the team and the amount of, amount of talented players they have under the age of 26 and even under the age of 23, there's so many. I think there were 15 players that played on Grand Final Day that were, that were tw- age 26 or younger. And even some of the players that we think are older guys, like Callum Mills is 25, Isaac Heaney 26, Tom Papley 26. These guys who you think might be closer to the 30 mark are only in their mid-20s. Mm. As we said off the top though, Jake, age, maybe the, the follow-the-leader thing is to get a couple of really yeah, experienced that's I, 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 don't, I don't think they're old enough. But yeah. that's what Sydney, need to get Sydney have done well in terms in of exactly what you just said, in terms of the guys that have a lot of experience are still young. They've, yeah. they've played Papley all his career. They've played Mills. Yeah. They've played Heaney since Which day one. Which will pay really dev- dividends later on, I, I believe. Especially when you've got half a dozen younger players that are aged between 20 and 23 who look like being absolute A-graders. This, this, this seems like the time. exact same discussion we had last year when we were talking about the Bulldogs though, Jake. And what happened? Well, the dogs they, they really struggled and they well they made they scraped into finals this year and then and then got bounced out. I, I tipped the Bulldogs to win the flag. Yeah. So um, it just goes to show I think you can be bullish about the future prospects, but You can, but I also think the Bulldogs were a bit older than than I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I, I think the Bulldogs team from last year was a bit older than the Sydney team from this year. Can can I just very quickly flip this on its head though, because I'm really interested in the future of Geelong. I asked Chris Scott this question at the press conference because I think a lot of people will go okay, now they've won it, you know, the the motivation won't be there, the hunger will drop off. Now this side probably will be 
mm. a bit old. A couple of early retirements. Like if, if they had lost, maybe a couple of players go around one more, try and get it out. Yeah. Or, well, the or question like I had was, and it sounds crazy given that Geelong just smacked them, but who's more likely to be back there next year? You know, if, if there are to be some retirements from the Geelong team, which seem like it could happen based on some of the emotion after the game, um, and Sydney only going to get better with, with these younger guys another season into them. Is it crazy to suggest Sydney's more likely to be back there on the grand final stage next year? No, more I, likely I, than Geelong? that's what I'm saying. I think a lot of people will. Yeah. I, I think you'll have fewer people tipping Geelong to go back-to-back than perhaps any other reigning Premier being tipped to go back-to-back. It, and it mm. makes sense. But I'm, I just think it's a fascinating thing because at the same time... No one would be surprised if they did it. <laughs> because they've done it for 11 years. Yeah, they see, keep coming it's back. It's a crapshoot, this caper, back. isn't it? We're, we're doing it again, <laughs> really? see? We're doing it again, talking Geelong down. They never get the credit. No one's going to tip Geelong to go back-to-back. Well, you know what? <laughs> I think I might just to be contrarian. <laughs> I like it. Uh, well, we did mention... You kind of mentioned about some of the emotions that we saw, especially towards the end of the game when the result was, was fairly well-known and some of these senior players got their moment to shine um, you talk about you know Joel Selwood when he kicked the goal the emotions that he showed when mm. when he did that and you saw vision of um, of his wife and his mum in the stands and they were all crying and you just I, sort of I thought con- I was convinced there's... he was he was about to announce his retirement but someone made a good point by doing that you really do take away from the, the team, the team and, and he's the a good he's a captain and he's yeah. been captain for a long time he wouldn't do that I feel like and you know it's probably happening right now while we're recording you never know uh, but he might do that you know Privately and, and, and announce it at some point, but not when the gloss is still oh, I'd be on surprised the premiership. If he plays another game after that, and the way it all ha- the way it all unfolded, I'd be very surprised yeah. if he plays again. Is he is he the type to sort of? And I don't know when they're holding. Is he the type to wait till a BNF and just announce it to the club? For, like I, I just feel like he's that type of person. Mm. He's not going to come out and do it as a media. It's going to be like, well, I'll just wait to the BNF well, and well, I'll tell at, all the look fans look at and Hawkins and and some of the other players. Their reactions to it, it, it almost felt like he told them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. someone knew. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, which, Shane Crawford, when he did it, I don't think did it immediately. He announced it in the week he? before, didn't he? That it was going to be his last game. Yeah. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah. he might have. Oh, okay. yeah, leading okay. into the match, it was going to be his last game but regardless. I mean, you couldn't go out on a better note. Know, but the problem yeah. is, what if if Geelong lose by a point and then you think, gee, oh. we can go again next year? Then you've gone too early if you've retired during the week. You know why? You know why he has to do it. Actually, I'm doing this off the top, but I'm pretty sure it's right. Uh, Two thousand and. Didn't in 2009, Geelong won the flag and their premiership captain retired immediately, Tom Harley. And then 2011, Cameron Wing is captain and retires immediately after they win a flag. Now, he has to do it. <laughs> has to, does he? Well, you know, just to continue <laughs> did, the did, trend. Yeah, did yeah, I don't retire that year straight up? Yeah. He retired in 2011? Yeah. Cameron Wing yeah, has been in the game for 11 years. He's been years. a Channel 7 commentator, That's if you insane, ask some people, for about 40 years. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? Uh, what, how quickly time goes? Yeah. Oh, welcome to getting older, Joe. <laughs> Rowan, you, you talked about uh, off the top um, just the professionalism of the club and how how happy you are for a, a team full of you know individuals that clearly value the the team aspect of footy and and have have toiled away the hard way and and have just shown exemplary um, sort of I don't know grace in in victory. Some of the moments in the in the in the celebrations as well, and even in the lead up to the game, Levi Ablett being walked out with Joel Selwood, just beautiful scenes and some wonderful photos. Um, they got uh, Sam Morfitt, the the super fan, out onto the ground to celebrate as well, and Jeremy Cameron put his premiership medal around him, and they they had a good time there. Um, some of the scenes in the rooms, Tyson Stengel's story. There's just a lot of really fascinating, wonderful storylines that have come out of this Cats. Week. Well, there's another reason Joel Selwood has to retire because you, I don't know if people notice when he got his medal he gave away his boots 
Like if he plays another year and they win a flag, he'll be writing someone into his will the next one. You know, I mean, how far can you go? But it was they, they, they were great moments. And yeah, look, I, I don't want to turn this into a Geelong love fest, but I mean, they, they I'm are sensing a, that you're you're about to abandon the bombers and jump onto the cats. The I country will, game might you might actually have one of those half yeah. I, on. I, I will never do that. But I look, I've always liked them for various reasons. Even going back to the the Malcolm Blight era, they played entertaining football. I think they've always been, in all seriousness, I think the the geography helps them a bit. I think being out of Melbourne makes them a little bit different. Mm. Um, but I, I think that, you know, they've all they've always been humble and, and down to earth and approachable and um, just a, a great club. And they have to be a, a template for mm. everyone to follow in every respect, really. Massively I'm, successful I'm club. that Dangerfield finally got his premiership. And I know we spoke about it earlier in the week and why it shouldn't matter, but obviously it does matter. And it matters a lot to him and it will be something that is on his legacy. I'm glad he got it. And I also, Jeremy Cameron, I think... He's a player that there are so many stories around and there are a lot of great stories, but Cameron is another one too. I mean, drafted, goes to the Giants and you, you talk about Geelong having to toil away the last few years. Geelong haven't toiled away the last few years. Geelong's been a bloody good team the last few years. The Giants were toiling away in those early years. I'll, I'll, I'll see your Jeremy Cameron and raise you a Zach Tui. Jeremy Cameron was at least on an mm. up-and-coming team, made it to the grand final. Zach Tui played 100 straight games for Carlton when they were losing every second week. Yeah, but Jeremy so, Cameron was the best player on a Giants team for eight years. But they weren't, they weren't horrible. They were on their way up. That's what I'm saying. I think Zach Tui's career... I looked at Zach Tui sort of running around with the Irish flag just thinking, how good's your career I, I think, ended up being? You know, come to a new country just and sums spent, up yeah. what a great... Like, the, the storylines are not just, oh, Geelong, they've been there forever. Oh, they've, another flag, all that sort of stuff, as we mentioned before. It is... There are stories everywhere and, and, and permeate mm. through. And you talk about four-time premiership players. Isaac Smith's now another one. Won the mm. Norm Smith medal. Um, had a day out. Three goals, 32-odd disposals, 770 metres gain. Mm. He's 33 or whatever he is. Great strike rate too yeah. five grand finals for four wins just on Tui how good who could have thought he would have been anywhere near as good for Geelong for this long as he's been as good as he he was pretty good at Carlton but he's going to another level at Geelong uh, everyone leaves Carlton gamer. there was a period uh, everyone leaves Carlton and becomes on. a star <laughs> yeah. but 250 games yeah. Um, and he and O'Connor, the Irish, mm. I did a interview with uh, a Dublin radio station during the week. You know, they were really Ireland was really focused on this game. Yeah. I mean, and traditionally, Ireland has some some ties to um, to the Sydney ties. as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They must have been quite torn up there. Some in, ties. Uh, yeah. Very good. Uh, Jake, speaking of the Norm Smith medal, though, you're a bit disappointed, I think. Uh, you came into the office in a bit of a huff this morning, and as soon as we mentioned that it was, uh, the every, name every Chad day, Warner, no. you just sort of let loose. Well, don't get me wrong. I think Isaac... I'm happy Isaac Smith won it. Look, uh, are his, you, though? His, his game... His, it's not as if it was he played an average game and, and got gifted the norm. Like, yes, he's he's clearly played a great game. You're obsessed with individual awards, aren't you, Jay? He loves them. Yeah. 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 Okay, matters. go on. Sorry. That's what matters. Isaac Smith was... Pr- uh, he was wearing that Norm Smith very proudly, wasn't he? Um, I thought he was the third best player on the ground yesterday. And I thought Patrick Dangerfield was better. His six direct score goal assists. goal assists was 
unbelievable. I mean, that hasn't happened for any player at all this season. I know Christian's looking that up. But it wasn't just that. It was everything. It was the classic Dangerfield game that we've come to expect from him. Bottom of the pack, feeding the ball out. Nine clearances, 19 contested possessions. He started everything. He was the man to go into that first centre bounce, like we said during during the week on, on Thursday. Go into the first centre bounce, set the tone. He had the first kick of the game, the first clearance. And from there, I thought he was phenomenal, uh, Dangerfield. Um, and probably unlucky not to get a goal in the end, but I don't think he cares. But the, the, those six, setting up those six goals, those direct six goals, incredible. And then the other one was Warner. So this is where I kind of don't understand. So Dangerfield... His side put, lost by 80 points, Jake. His side lost by 81 one points. Yes, I understand that. But if we're, if, we're judge, we're, if we're looking at the players and we're judging who was who played the best game, why should that be factored in? Why well, should that... Why should the margin be factored in? If Geelong... If, if Geelong miss all their shots at goal and Sydney win by a point, Chad Warner gets the Norm Smith medal for playing the identical game. I'm big on precedent and I just thought of a... I mean, there's been far greater examples of what you're talking about than Chad Warner and the most obvious one for me is Dermot Brereton, 1985, kicks eight goals, but his side loses by 78 points. Now, you never see voting details for that, but um, Simon Madden was a unanimous winner of the Norm Smith. Which I, and, and this isn't just the AFL. This is all, this is all sport, but yeah. I think it's crazy. Why, why should the score determine how a particular player played? So, at what, so I guess the question is, at what point does Warner become ineligible to win, to win the Norm Smith medal? At what margin does he become ineligible? See, is I, it 40 points? Well, uh, I know, and I know like everyone will be looking at margin, but... I just think you're using a bad game as the example. We've just been through, you know, 65 inside 50s to 32. And again, if they miss all their shots, they still have 33 scoring shots to 12. It was a complete domination from one team to the other. How many disposals did other. Warner so end up with? He had 29. 29. Kicked 29, two goals. two goals, 18 contested possessions and 10 and, clearances. And yeah. Like, to put it out there, in terms of Champion Data's ratings points, he topped the list. Yeah, so ratings points, he topped the list. And again, this is another sort of, you know, funny little measure that you can always you can always find different ways to look at the game rating points had him as number one which again rating points is a lot to look at just basically where you are with the ball and where you move it to and what top so you move it from a high pressure yeah. situation to a low pressure situation 40 meters ahead of the play that's that's going to get you more rating points so it was the equal 13th best game of the season um in terms of rating points i'd love to know if those other if those, those other 12 got the, those players got the three brown low votes yeah, I know Different the high, I know the highest one. You might know off the top of your head. So, the highest game of the year was Toby Green uh, against the Bulldogs, where he kicked seven or eight. So I don't know if seven, off the top of your head if yeah. he, if you got the three. I don't know if yeah, you know that, did. but uh, that was the highest rated game for the year. But in ranking points, which is just more looking at margin of the game and basically what stats you're winning. So it doesn't really matter too much about exactly how far away from goal you are. It just depends what zone you're in: um, defense, midfield, forward zone. Um, and yeah, the, the, the situation of the game. So, so Isaac Smith came up as our number one player on ranking points. So again, Warner on one, uh, Smith on another. Another sort of, you know, just to sort of compare the two, Tom Hawkins come up, I think, 27th as the rated player. So where he got the ball and what he turned it into. So grabbing it out of the ruck and kicking a goal is pretty good in ratings, but probably, you know, not as good as, you know, some of the other sort of ball movement things you can do. Whereas he was the ninth best player on ranking points because, again, rankings took into account when he did it, he did a lot of his damage when the game was Correct, close yeah. and those goals meant a lot more. So, yeah, different measures flying out around there. But, yeah, in terms of Chad Warner and Jake's sort of, yeah, anger for him, I, he was good, but I can't put him in. I don't think I could have him in the top five players, and it's not just the margin. It was the way the whole game was played. That's As I said, insane. Yeah. That's just flatly wrong. 
How can how can he not be? Well, Rowan, you've had experience in voting in Norm Smiths before. Yeah. Like when when you when it's a large margin or it does blow out, do you mm. give consideration to the best player on the losing side at all? Well, I I did, I've done two. I did '95, in which Carlton blew Geelong off the park, and I did '06, which was an absolute nail biter. Um, the Carlton Geelong one, I went three two one Carlton players, and Greg Williams was unanimous. Kick five and had thirty one disposals from a half forward flank. '06 was interesting because it could have been it was pretty close the voting but I think there were five judges and I'm pretty sure we all had Andrew Emboy as as BOG I did gee it's starting to uh, the details are getting sketchy now. I'm pretty sure in 06 I gave a vote to Brett Kirk so but that was a really close game, close game and yeah. in answer to your question Jake about at what point does he become ineligible I mean we've had Four medal Norm Smith winners from losing sides: yeah. uh, Morris Rioli, Gary Ablett, Buckley. Nathan Buckley, and Chris Judd. Yeah. Three of those were all single-figure margins, and the other one, Rioli, was uh, four goals. Here's I a fun hypothetical in the in your sort of um, vein, Jake. Mm. Would you rather win the Norm Smith on a losing grand final side, or would you rather win the premiership medal and get stiffed for the Norm Smith, Mister Individual? Uh, Take a Norm Smith. Oh, of course you are. This is a bloke you, you, you know what I was, I was thinking last night? I came home last night, and usually I've got this grand final ritual of no matter how it goes or how late, I have to sit there and watch the whole game again just so it – because it tends to become a bit of a blur. And I was thinking, you know what, I can't face it this time. And I was thinking, I wonder what Jake's doing. And I reckon to make up for yesterday, Jake, you would have been watching a replay of the Brownlow medal and go, I'm going to fast forward to when they gave the two votes in that round 17 game. Look at oh, the replay of Gill's delivery. Hey, hey I've, I've watched the full count twice. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, We've got to wrap things You're up. You're sick. A, a Mate, just, but just one cool thing. Just on Warner, quickly. Yes. Closing remarks. It, it's not that he that he didn't get it or he became ineligible when they were 40, 50, whatever points down. He did not of of the thirty possible votes given out by the five, the five people giving the award out three two one. He didn't get a single vote, mm. and he's got claims to be the best player on the ground. And we've seen now with and I know the Brownlow is not the Norm Smith; it's different. But that's just, you're still voting for the best player on the ground. We see now, off fairly often that the player in a losing side can get the three votes, and it does happen a lot. I, I just am staggered that he doesn't get a vote, and and if if. Geelong, as I said, if Geelong miss a whole heap of set shots and the margin's a lot closer, or Sydney win, and all the every statistic is identical, he gets the Norm Smith and he's unanimous. Is and it, it, mm. it, it can't be... It's the old thing with the cricket. The, the same ball can't be out and not out. It, it's got to be one way always. And I think it's crazy that he wasn't in the votes. Well, I'll just uh, bring you back to a very old and famous saying, winners write history, losers please themselves. Do you agree well. with Jake? At Footy Tips on Twitter, let us know. Let him know. Um... <laughs> We'll see how, we'll see how that goes. for the Brownlow next year. Is the yeah, hype justified or is it hyperbole? The segment where I'll say a statement, you tell me whether the hype's justified or it's hyperbole. Every player who plays in a premiership campaign should get a premiership medal, Rowan. Uh, ooh, hyperbole, but I want to qualify that because I, I think it should extend beyond the 22. Now, I, rec- I reckon you need a minimum games and 10 strikes me as about a that's about half a season I reckon if you play well, half if you played a, 9 really good games you'd be pretty stiff yeah, I, thing, yeah but there's, the line, well yeah. I reckon half the game so maybe maybe it's 11 because 22 games but I, I reckon I've changed on this and maybe it's because I, I you know I'm so disappointed for Max Holmes but um, yeah. 
you know, look, who would begrudge Max Holmes a premiership medal? And I think as soon as you do it for the first time, people start to accept it. Everyone's like, oh, it's never happened before. They wouldn't want it. The players wouldn't want all that sort of stuff. I think the, the as soon as you hand them out the first time, players will be stoked to be part of the campaign. You'll need to keep moving that line because then what'll, what'll happen is, you know, Joel Selwood will play nine games and, and do his knee and then they'll go on and win the go on and win it and then he doesn't get one. Everyone's saying, well, it should have been nine games. And then it's like, well, but then do you give you it to everyone? Once. I think it Maybe has to be. I think it once. has to be the the players on the day, or everyone in the squad. And I hate the fact that everyone in the squad gets one because then you get all timers. You know, you get players that play two senior games and they're premiership players. They never even played on well, the day. Uh, You're going to get mid-season draftees be given premiership medals. What was your What was your stat that someone who's a bit left field would have would have four well, premiership medals if this was the case? If oh. if we were giving it to everyone on the squad, so I'm not sure how many games he played each season, but John Segler would be a four-time premiership. Medalist there, without, there play, are, without ever NBA playing in a grand final. Players who have these, but he's, well, he's, but he's never played in a grand final. So I hate using him as the example because it's, it's, this isn't a John Segler thing. But a guy that has never played in a grand final to have four premiership medallions just does not what, sit right what, with me. Mm. Well, far worse than that, though. What about like um, when England won the Ashes in '05? <laughs> Paul Collingwood. You know, did nothing in one test and got an MBE. <laughs> like it wasn't just a medal; he got he got an honour. Oh boy, uh, Jake! The day grand final is dead after it was revealed that just two point one seven nine million people tuned in for yesterday's grand final, compared to three million last year in prime time. Well, everyone keeps telling me that the day grand final is what we want, and then it, we had a day grand final and no one watched it. So no, I, I disagree. I think that the numbers are lying to us because. This is the first year, especially in Victoria, that uh, you were allowed to leave your home to watch it. And there would have been people congregating around television sets. And in 2020, everyone was watching their own individual yeah, TV. Yeah, but what, what about going back part, way back before COVID? I mean, it's the same thing. We've had It was the lowest the lowest ratings for any grand final in history. But so what? I mean, why do you care about... Why do it just people... Looks, it just... The night is so much better. Oh, the God. night is... Be, <laughs> night games are so much better. You know, you got the game, you got all this glare across the across the ground. The it red footy, looked, you know, ah, the red footy. Right. No. <laughs> night grand finals, so much better. Uh, oh, you're in peak uh, grand final form, Jake. Uh, last one. Christian, just because I haven't uh, thrown to you. Pay the money for the best entertainment acts in the world for your pre-game show. One... Just pay it. Open, open I don't the know. Hyperbole. Just, again, I, I don't attend, you know, as I said, I go every second year and I'm not big into the grand final entertainment, so it couldn't bother me. But give give local talent more. Why do we have to spend so much money to bring artists from around the world? We've got talent here. Do people care? Like, Robbie Williams was good, but do people care that much? Yeah, about I, don't, no. I don't mind having a big international act, but I thought they did well. I think every, all the other acts were basically around them were Australian, weren't they, at halftime? Yep. I'm, I'm all for, yeah, local talent. We, ne- we never talk day. about it. And you know, until the week before and the the day and after, you forget. Like unless it's like a meatloaf performance, you tend to forget who was the the well, entertainer. By the same token, Rage Against the Machine have reformed and are doing shows in the US. Could have got them across here. Would it might have been a little bit of a worry for the senses. I think but, that's uh, our cue, isn't it? We're, we're done for the day. Hey, what was the over-under on Rowan's uh, 1980s references today, by well, the way, Jake? Well, a couple, but uh, we oh, didn't right. set the line this Did morning. Did you win that bet? <laughs> <No>. oh. <laughs> you threw me the other day when I mentioned the 1991 Hawthorne All-Australian team. I thought, I don't reckon I've spoken about it that much. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, we'll have a couple more episodes later in the year. We'll talk uh, some list management stuff, maybe some draft previews, Jake. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of uh, raw footy analysis, that's about it for the season, isn't it? I think so, but there will be a few. There'll be some trade and draft stuff to come, as you said, but... Stay tuned as well because we might have some special content coming from the on the podcast in the off season as well. So Is that some, right? some some interesting mm. fun club by club stuff. Does ah. that mean my idea about the nineties retrospectives got up or? 
No, it did not. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know where you're going. We'll keep that a surprise in case it doesn't work out. But we'll uh, we'll put our heads together. Christian, uh, been wonderful to have you on the podcast again this year. We'll probably get you into some uh, list management stuff a little bit later. Yeah, no. Um, sitting down tomorrow to start to get my head around the draft. So yeah. yeah, looking forward to it. Excellent, excellent stuff, Rowan. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, we'll probably see you at some point as well in the next uh, few weeks when we convene again. It's it's been great fun, you young whippersnappers. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Uh, Jake, always good to speak with you. To everyone at home, uh, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.